Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, today, the main point, I'm so excited to talk about this, even though it's a little bit of a weighty topic, is uh, that death and resurrection is the pattern for the Christian life. Uh, death and resurrection is the pattern, is the, de- the defining narrative for the Christian life. Let me tell you some of my deaths. Uh, I had a dream. I feel like I've worked this over a lot in sermons, but sorry, but stick with it. Uh, being a doctor, as growing up, I wanted to be a doctor, this hardcore doctor. And uh, I, I just want to put a, a finer point on this uh, dream I had to be a doctor. I had this um, daydream or vision or whatever, where I'm a doctor in some big city and I have big muscles. I'm a surgeon. I buzz my head, uh, maybe a tattoo or two. I drive a Dodge Viper. Uh, and I don't sleep that much because sleep is for wimps, you know, and I'm just like operating and doing it. Um, it's silly. It's ridiculous, right? <laughs> um, Dodge, they don't even make Dodge Vipers anymore. Um, but uh, that vision for my life, that part of me that wanted to be a doctor uh, was crucified, died. Uh, I, I had a come to Jesus moment in a very real sense and I remember a moment when I, God re- revealed to me just like the, the foolishness of the Dodge Viper version of my life. Um, you guys know what I drive now. You know, it's, it's a little bit le- less ho- horsepower than a Dodge Viper. And, um, <clears throat> and I, there's a moment where I, I realized a lot of things about that, about my identity and my, my idolatry, as Ryan talked about in, in the liturgy, uh, that wrapped up in being a doctor. And, there, and, and, I, and I let it go. And, and there was this moment I remember distinctly. I was, at the, it was in college. I had just worked out at the rec center and I was showering uh, in the rec center before class. And I just was like, what is going to happen to my life? I felt like the, the entire narrative, the rails I'd been running on, my whole plan for, you know, I, I felt like it needed to go away. But I, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And <clears throat> out of the death of that dream, that ridiculous version of my life, <clears throat> I, you know, I have a, a deepening experience of grace, a dependence on God that is so, so sweet, that brought rest to a deep part of my soul. That's just one death. I could share a lot more. One more um, I came in my first church as I was pastoring, and I, I feel very compelled by the mission of God to make disciples and baptize them and teach them to uh, obey all that Jesus command. And uh, I realized that some of that intensity that was wrapped up in my pastor dream, I had kind of just transferred into my ministry where like all the intensity and like get stuff done of that doctor vision. I now kind of said like I was at a church that was small and needed to be revitalized. And I'm like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I had kind of co-opted God's mission of love and, and renewal and, and made it about what I was going to get done. And so the, the outworking of that, I'm not proud of this. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was a pretty angsty, angsty young pastor. You know, it was like, come on, let's do it. You know, I was frustrated with people that wouldn't join me on mission. And I was deeply, deeply lonely. And there was a moment I was trying to fall asleep one night. I think it was shortly after Johnny was born where God just showed me once again that I had basically taken a lot of the idolatry wrapped up in being a doctor and just kind of moved it over into my vocation of being a pastor. And that was, that began that, that, the, the young hotshot pastor that comes into a small declining church and makes it blow up. Uh, you know, was, was a, was a vision that had to die, that had to be crucified. And God brought me into a journey, uh, a, a sweeter season, a slower season where I, I came home to the fact that I was a small town Baptist preacher, <laughs> that there was just nothing cool or impressive or fast about the life that God had brought me into. And it was a journey into how to be with people in loving, gentle, curious ways. 
you know, patiently wondering with them, what is God up to in their life? What kind of new life is he bringing into their life? And uh, instead of seeing people as means to the end to accomplish my vision or to make a difference in the world, instead, people themselves, loving them, being with them, being a part of their story became more and more a joy. And it, it's a new life that I, I think, you know, I, I see fruit of that that death, uh, even this week, uh, I started doing a weekly Bible study across the parking lot at the Laurels and, uh, just a few weeks in here. It's a, it's a very strange, scruffy, uh, wonderful experience. And I was just sitting there Wednesday afternoon with the sweet folks that uh, decided to take a chance on a new Bible study. Um, just feeling so much love and tenderness for them. There's a, it's such a mix of folks over at the Laurels. There's a, a woman in her late 80s, uh, kind of normal nursing home type of situation, uh, you know, who, who just weeps several times throughout the Bible study of all the grief that she's going through and not being at her house and all the books that are in storage that she can't have with her there and the people that she said goodbye to. And then uh, there's a, a man, a younger man in, in, in his early 50s who, who's, who's there and uh, has a trach in and can't talk that much and uh, has a hunger for the things of God but feels so limited by where he is physically in life. And anyways, I could talk about that a lot or whatever, but it, I, I hope you can just see the, the arc of God's work. I, by no means bragging about this. Like my plan was to have tattoos and a shaved head and a Dodge Viper. And it was God's plan, God's work in my life that would have me sitting with some folks at the Laurels so full of love and so happy to be sitting there at that table with them. It's God's work, okay? There's not, not, nothing about what I am doing. And I tell those stories as examples for the main point is that death and resurrection is the defining narrative of the life of a Jesus follower. If we're going to be Christians, uh, we're going to be little Christs, then both individually in our own stories and corporately as a church family, our, our existence will be marked by a pattern of death and resurrection. It is the way of Jesus. It, and honestly, it makes sense of life. There's other narratives out there, other worldviews, other life philosophies that would say something else, uh, and I just don't think they hold up to reality. Death and resurrection, death and new life. It's a rhythm that is just the way God works in the lives of people. And we know that because that's the way his son lived on the earth. That, that was the narrative that Jesus Christ lived during his time on the earth, showing us what life with God looks like. And so what about you? What, what deaths have you experienced in your life? Maybe literally. Maybe literally you've had people close to you die. Relationships end. Uh, or figurative deaths like I've experienced. I would bet a lot of money that all of us, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I'd bet a lot of money that all of us have experienced some kind of death. Some kind of loss. And so the question is have we allowed God to resurrect us in those deaths? Or are we just running from the pain and numbing it with food, with porn, with busyness? That is kind of the default in our culture. In, in the narrative of our broader culture, it's up and to the right, the pursuit of happiness, up and to the right. We have no category in our broader culture for what suffering does. It's just something to avoid and minimize. And if it does come, we should just numb it. But that is not the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is we allow God to bring new life to the deaths we experience in, in our stories. It's just what he does, beginning with raising Jesus from the dead, literally. A mentor of mine always said, suffering will either make you bitter or better. And following Jesus in this pattern of death and resurrection is the way that suffering, many things like Jesus suffered, will make us better, will make us more whole. James 1 says, consider all joy, when, my brothers, when you experience trials, testing of every kind, because it's through those that God makes us complete 
lacking nothing, makes us whole, lacking nothing. Sometimes in Christian circles, we might adopt a sneaky lie that would say, we're doing the Christian life right when we're up and to the right. We're getting more richer, happier, more liked by people. The prosperity gospel, uh, which began on the fringes, now permeate, permeates much of the church today. Compared to Psalm 1, which would say a righteous person is like a tree beside water that produces fruit in season. It's not, in, in normal nature, natural terms, it's not always harvest. There's winter seasons where there's nothing on the branches and the tree looks dead. But there are seasons of fruit that will come. There are seasons of life as a Jesus follower and seasons of life in the church family, a community of Jesus followers that are death, that are crucifixion, that are a season of becoming undone, that feel like steps downward or backward. Um, and, I, and we know this because of how the life of King Jesus, how his life looks. A, a little outline for us this morning will be Jesus's path, Jesus's invitation, and the kingdom of God. Maybe Jesus's kingdom. That would have probably would have made more sense. They all start with Jesus, but we'll do that next time I preach this sermon. So let's first let's set the scene. Verse twenty-nine, chapter eight, verse twenty-nine. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's the first accurate acknowledgement, confession of who Jesus is in Mark's gospel by someone other than demons. It, it, the demons are the first to, to do the, get the answer right on the quiz. And it's a turning point in the biography of Jesus that Mark is writing. Look at one, one commentator says it like this. It is Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1 is a continental divide between the first and second halves of the gospel. It unites Christology and discipleship in a unique and symbiotic relationship. It teaches that a proper, proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. When believers confess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. Jesus is not an objective datum, datum that, like a rock under a microscope, can be observed and examined in supposed neutrality. The statement, you are the Messiah, imposes a claim on the one who says it. The Son of Man calls those who would know him to follow him. And so here we have Peter's confession, his accurate understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. And after that, it unlocks this new level of discipleship to Jesus. What we are looking at today, starting in verse 31, is Jesus bringing his disciples into, uh, into a, being clear, honest with his disciples about what it means to follow him, what it's like to be his apprentice, what to expect. He's telling them ahead of time what to expect is going to come if they follow him as his king. So verse 31, he, Jesus he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days, rise again. So the first thing in this next level of discipleship is that Jesus wants his disciples to know that he, the king, the Messiah, the son of man, is going to suffer. Son of man is an Old Testament term that Jesus uses a lot. It's actually his favorite term to use to reference himself. It comes primarily from Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel has a vision of one coming like the son of man to set up an eternal kingdom who would suffer and then set up an eternal kingdom for God and his people. And the kicker is that the son of man comes as the eternal awaited king. Uh, Daniel written to God's people while they're in exile in Babylon, uh, that he would come after a season of suffering. Jesus is tapping into God's grand story, his big picture story of redemption that starts in Genesis and, and continues all the way to the end. And he's explaining, <clears throat> shockingly, who it was going to be that would reject him and cause the suffering. 
It was the professional Christians, the professional God, they weren't Christians, professional God people, the elite religious leaders, the professional Messiah lookouts were going to be the ones who would reject and murder the Messiah. It's a staggering moment for Jesus' disciples who would have grown up, grown up with great deep respect for this, these group of people, elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. They're the most respected people. It's not the dregs of society that kill Jesus. It is the religious leaders that do, the, the, the cream of the crop of society. And even more shocking than who's going to reject the Messiah is the fact that the Messiah will be killed. It's like a baseball coach saying like, guys, I know for a fact from God Almighty that we're going to win the World Series, but we're going to lose the first 80 games first. This is like, what? what? I, I don't understand, you know? Or like, we're going to win this game, but we need to get down 10 to nothing before we can start hitting. I want you to like swing wildly and you know, whatever. It just doesn't compute. Like the Messiah should win. The Messiah, Messiah does not get rejected, does not kill. It doesn't even make sense. Verse 32. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. While it is still pretty crazy that Peter rebuked the man he just confessed was the Messiah, his confusion is, is understandable. It's reasonable. He's like, no, Jesus, I just said you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You don't die. You make all things new. We talked about Peter a lot last week, uh, so you can go back and check out the podcast for, for that. Uh, but Jesus says you're just not on the same, same wavelength. You're missing the foundational pattern of how God brings about redemption, death, and resurrection. And that leads us to Jesus' invitation, verse 34. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a huge moment in Jesus' ministry. Mark is doing something really important. He has Jesus turning from teaching just his disciples, just his inner crew, and turning and calling a crowd to himself. Isn't that funny? I mean, if you've been walking this journey with us, it's funny because he's hiding from the crowds. He's sneaking into houses. He's going away to desolate places. He's taking a man by a hand to heal him privately. He's doing everything he can to avoid the crowds that are following him around. But here he's calling the crowds and he offers an invitation. We could spend, we should spend our entire lives considering the difference between Jesus's invitations and Jesus's commands. But it's so important right here to see that Jesus's words are not a command. He's not commanding us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. He's simply stating a fact of reality. And by doing so, an invitation that whoever wants to be my disciple must do this, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He's not saying you have to. He's just saying, if you want to, if you want to be Jesus's disciples, you must embrace death and resurrection as a way of life. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. Do you see Jesus inviting you into this? What does this mean? What does it mean to take up, take up our cross? Well, the New Living Translation of this verse says it like this. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. I think that's a, that's a helpful way to think about it. Just like I had to give up my own way of being in college, which is studying like a crazy person and trying to become a doctor and ignoring people. I remember telling someone I would have such better grades if I didn't have all these friends. Like, just, like, just be glad you didn't know me in college. Uh, 
In order to be Jesus' disciples, we have to give up our way and be undone. To have a season where just stuff doesn't make sense. Our normal approaches no longer work in life. I had to do that so that I could be resurrected into something new. Something becoming new. I'm not like pretending I'm done, but you know, someone who loves people more, who can delight in nurturing God's work in someone's life. So the question is, what are we denying? And Jesus says, deny yourself. What are we denying? We're denying false and twisted desires. We're denying the childish, self-serving ways of living where we try to meet our own needs in stunted ways. That's what was going on with me in, in, in both being, trying to be a doctor and trying to be some hotshot young pastor making waves. It's impossible it's impossible to unpack how shattering it would have been to hear Jesus say, take up your cross. Cause we have like a millennia or so of church history and church culture where the cross is jewelry, the, the crosses and church logos. Cause the cross at this point is, is before even G- Jesus died on one it was, it was an absolutely grotesque symbol of shame, torture, and death. It's probably, the, the worst that ever existed. It, crucifixion invented by the Roman Empire to instill abject terror in their enemies. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. It was so bad. It was reserved for the people that they wanted with shock and awe to put into their place. Deeply shameful. People not only died publicly, which is shameful, but they died naked in front of their neighbors and family. And they died in the most painful way that the Romans could scheme and devise with nails through their hands and feet, needing to push up on the nail in your feet in order to breathe until you got too weak or lost too much blood to push up the bone against the nail and then you suffocated. The cross is where we get the word excruciating. You see the root word crucifixion in there. This is what Jesus is saying we will experience if we want to be his disciples. We have to deny ourselves, our false selves, the twisted desires that have been shaped by the devil's lies, their sinful flesh in a broken society of the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what was mired in the two deaths I told you about, the Dodge Viper doctor and the the hotshot pastors, twisted desires that have been influenced by things other than scripture and the Holy Spirit. And we have to come follow Jesus and prepare to hurt really badly. You're welcome to church. Everybody says, she all wanted to hear. But in case we were wondering if Jesus, by calling the crowd to himself, was selling out or, you know, going all commercial and attractional in his ministry, we see that he called the crowd to him who were hyped on his miracles and free food and then invited them to crucifixion, to to have a life marked by the pattern of death and resurrection. For all of all of Jesus's disciples, this is what happened. Uh, besides Judas, who betrayed him, it, it came true. Uh, except for you know John, uh, Apostle John died as an old man, um, but he was boiled alive and somehow didn't die. So you know, I don't know if he necessarily got out <laughs> got out of that one without any pain. And um, they all died for the sake of Jesus. All these goofballs here that are seeing things partly, seeing Jesus kind of like vaguely like trees, eventually got it clear enough to die for Jesus. And I stress this idea of whoever wants to be Jesus' disciples, because maybe for some of us here today, the most true thing if, if we could be super honest with ourselves, is that we don't actually want to be Jesus's disciple. We don't want to follow Jesus to where it hurts, to where it steps on our toes, destroys our life plans, keeps us from things we want. Maybe we want to identify with Christianity because it's all we've known. And we have a, we have a shrunk down version of what the Bible teaches that is enough. It serves our desire for comfort and respectable living and gives us some a friendly place to hang out on Sunday mornings and a get out of hell free card. But the truth will set you free, friend. Maybe 
you need to be honest with yourself and say that I'm pretty happy with my way of life and I don't actually want to die. I don't want pain. Uh, my, all the boxes are checked. I'm good. And we, we got to wonder, though, if some of the reasons why churches are closing and most of them are not marked by love and power and joy and true transformation are because they might be full of people that aren't really disciples who have not left their own way and embrace pain for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The next is scary, but I think is, if we can think about it, is, is also good news, is, is the best news. Verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Again, this is an invitation to reality. It's Jesus just saying how it works. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. That's a warning from the king. If you try to hold on to your life, hoard it, stick to your own plan, you will lose it. The easiest examples of this are, you know, the, the famous ones. Uh, my, you know, my favorite one is Tom Brady. <laughs> when he, like, when we're years down the future and no one knows about Tom Brady, I'm going to, like, have to find a new quarterback. I'm going to have to actually watch football to find a new quarterback to talk about. He's, is he retired? I think he retired. But th- three or four Super Bowls ago, Tom Brady was doing a 60-minute interview, which is after three Super Bowls, after he won three Super Bowls uh, and left one beautiful actress, pregnant and married a supermodel. And the interviewer says, so you won three Super Bowls, all this stuff, you know, what's next? And he like tears up and he says, there's gotta be more than this. There's gotta be more than this. Someone who's good looking, insanely wealthy, the goat, you know, uh, of quarterbacks, the greatest of all time. And what's staggering is that he just doubled down. He just went and won three or four more Super Bowls. I've lost track. It was just not enough. There's, there's, a, there's a, a wrath that comes when you get what you think you want and you realize it's not enough. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And there's pastor versions of this where there, there is the young hotshot pastor that blows up and makes waves and is changing everything. And, you know, there's like a ranking out there of fastest growing churches or hottest churches or whatever, you know, and you could, you could run your soul into the ground trying to get onto that list. And what one pastor in particular that was pretty influential in my life had a church, I think about 15,000 people, but he lost his soul in the process. The church blew up like one Sunday, Tens of thousands of people are gathering. The next Sunday, the church does not exist. All because he had given his soul in exchange for wild success. This is uh, Jesus loving us by giving us a warning. And I, I, I share these big stories because they're kind of, you know, they're complete. It's a complete story. You know, like Tom Brady is doing whatever he's doing now, trying to figure out how to retire and blowing up his marriage and, you know, all these things. And then this other church just does not exist for all its impact, for all its quick rise, does not exist. It's like when we cling to our lives, we will lose it. And I don't know many of us who are in the NFL or mega church pastors or, or whatever, but for us, for us, it's probably a lot smaller, a lot smaller kinds of ambitions like maybe it's just i'm just going to be safe safety has become this incredible idolatrous thing in our society like if we're not safe then somebody has done something wrong and i'm not saying be foolish or reckless or whatever but like there's just nowhere does jesus ever tell us to be safe or tell us to expect to be safe he says in this life you will have tribulations or whatever and so what types of disobedience do we accept because it would be dangerous to pursue? 
I want to feel comfortable. We worked hard and we've retired and this is my time. And so it's is me and my life and my retirement and my time to play and have fun and be comfortable all the time. These, these culturally acceptable ways of living that we can see are trying to hold on to our life. And Jesus is saying, you will lose it. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? And he gets into this idea of shame, which makes perfect sense because he's talking about the cross, which was this incredibly shameful way of dying. And you think about what it would have been like for the first Christians after Jesus rises from the dead, uh, the Holy Spirit comes, the church uh, is born, and what are they doing? They're telling people about someone who was crucified. They're telling people about someone who died publicly naked as an enemy of the state. Was it, it's good news. He died for our sins or whatever, but it is deeply, deeply shameful. He says that identifying with Jesus is how we uh, are, he identifies with us when he comes back in his Father's glory. Right here, this is Jesus telling us that the onward and upward respectable way of life uh, might not be what he has in store for us. What would it be like to be embarrassed, to be, uh, to be shamed by the culture? Well, we're, we're getting more and more familiarity with that as just some basic biblical truths become bigotry or hate speech or, or whatever. If nothing else, Jesus is setting our expectations that as we identify with Jesus, it's, it's going to be awkward. I went to a gathering of doctors not too long ago, and it was just a wonderful non-starter to when they asked me what I did. <laughs> what do you do? I'm a, I'm a pastor. Cool, you know, what do you do? And he turn, you know, turned to the next guy or whatever. And luckily, it was my brother, who's a financial advisor, and a lot of doctors have to say about that. Um, Jesus is setting our expectations, and we, will we let him? That's the question. Will we let him? Will we come into this way of death and resurrection so that we can experience the kingdom of God with power? Let me read in verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly I tell you, some of who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is a weird verse. We don't have a time to do it full justice. Suffice it to say, He's not talking about the like final coming, the perusia of the kingdom, uh, re the renewal of all things. But instead, he's talking about the kingdom in the sense that it's life with God, the cross and resurrection that brings the kingdom of life with God under his rule. Because Jesus is resurrected, um, life with God is now available to us. And in every single one of the gospels, this verse uh is, is some form of this verse is shared right before the transfiguration, right before Jesus, Matthew, Mark, <clears throat> sorry, Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus onto the mountain uh, and see him transfigured and see with Elijah and Moses there and hear the word of God over, see life with God's little foretaste of what is coming in the power of the Spirit. And, and what I, what I want to do with this verse, and it's probably doing too much, so stick with me but I hope it serves you, is to connect the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is not dead, because he's alive and we can face tomorrow, when he, the resurrected Jesus will breathe on us and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he returns to the Father and he sends the Helper to dwell in our bodies. And there's this passage in Galatians Galatians 5, it's right after the, the famous fruit of the Spirit that connects this idea of crucifixion, crucifixion and the Holy Spirit. My bookmark got moved, I'm sorry. Hang on. Right after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it says in verse 24, Galatians 5, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
So there's a way of living in the resurrected life where we allow the spirit that dwells in our bodies to bear fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, the life that we all want. Contrasting to living by the flesh, which is envy, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, anger outbursts, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, along with the scary ones like orgies. You know, envy and orgies are in the same list. None of us make us out, make out alive from that, that list. And I want us to see that the resurrected Jesus rose and ascended to the Father and sends us the Holy Spirit. That when we embrace this pattern of death and resurrection, it creates space for the Holy Spirit to bring new life, to bring the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is through death that we experience the Holy Spirit resurrected life to have this kind of fruit in our lives. If you have any of the scary things, you know, a a porn addiction, fits of rage, crippling anxiety, just all the opposites of the fruit of the Spirit, a lack of self-control, then the way to new life in God and the power, in Christ and the power of the Spirit is through something dying, some part of you dying, being, allowing yourself to be undone. Because the reality is the, the resurrected life, uh, in the resurrected life, we have a choice. Uh, think, of, think of yourself like a little uh, appliance that plugs into an outlet. We can plug into the spirit and allow the, the power of the spirit to flow through, or we can plug in to the world, the flesh, and the devil and allow those kinds of fruit to flow through us. Now, my guess, if you've been in church, you, this is not new uh, to hear about the idea of taking up your cross. And, and so the, pa- the cry of my heart, the passion of my heart now uh, is, is to try to bring this out of the clouds or out of some like spiritual sentiment or, I don't know, a, you know, a youth group passion, you know, slogan or something like that. And like, what does it really mean to die and experience resurrection, to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Let me start with what it doesn't look like. Um, what su- it, taking up our cross su- does not mean superficially superficially eliminating everything good or fun in your life. It doesn't mean cutting out everything good or fun in your life. I was talking to Ryan and Amy about this the, this week, and they, I feel like depending on your church background, this might not apply. So let it go if it doesn't. You know, it's like if you like something, then God's probably asking you to not do it anymore <laughs> or whatever. Like, I remember a moment where I was like really jamming on reading the Gospels, like back in, I don't know, college or high school or something. And I remember, th- I remember Jesus juking myself. I was like, oh, I'm having so much fun doing this. I should probably go, you know, read Deuteronomy or something. I should do something hard or something like that because I, I shouldn't be having fun reading the Bible or something. Or, you know, Ryan shared like it, it might, in his background, like it was, you know, like, oh, well, I love music, so I probably shouldn't do music ever again. <laughs> you, know, or, you know, something like that. Like, I love to preach, you know, and so with such a gift that this is part of my workflow or whatever, so I should probably never do that and just go like, uh, you know, I don't know, do, do something not preaching. Uh, it doesn't mean we have no personality. It doesn't mean we have no passion or we don't use our voice and speak up. Um, it, it does not mean that we accept abuse of any kind or that we stay and endure abuse of any kind. Doesn't mean you stay in relationships that are abusive or work environments that are abusive. Doesn't mean you have to stay in those by any means. And it does, does not mean that you deny your needs. And I, I just want to flip the whole idea of needs on its head. Like there, in churches I've been a part of where there's a lot of young moms, you know, it's like all the moms, there's one point where all the moms were like denying or, or confessing the idolatry of sleep. You know, they got little babies at home and they're not getting any sleep. And it's like, what's on your heart? Oh, God's just really convicting me of how, uh, how much I idolize sleep. And it's like, it's not idolatry. It's being a human with a body. You know, you're not getting sleep. You know, it's not, it's not sin to want to sleep when you're not getting it. Because here, here's, let me, this is the flip on its head. Because I, I think for a lot of us, sharing our needs and allowing someone else to meet those needs feels like death. 
that the, the taking up your cross, crucifying part of yourself would be to say like, hey, I'm a young mom not getting any sleep. Will you come sit with the kids so I can go take a nap? I'm struggling getting, getting dinner on the table. Will you, will you cook us some meals once a week? That might be the, the way of, of dying. My, my point is that it's, it's not denying your needs or pressing your needs. It's, it's in, inviting into what feels like death. And so that then there's new life in there. There's new life where you die to the, the lie that you have to do it all by yourself and be, be a super person and not need anything. And then you re- receive new life, like free food <laughs> and sleep. So that's what it's not. What is it? Let me just hear some just thought, practical thoughts on what it means to die to yourself. First part is that it's surgical. It's precise and specific for each person. The longer I'm a pastor walking with people and the things of the soul, the, the more it just tickles me. It just seems so fun and curious on how different people are and how the exact invitation uh, to die might be good news for someone else. Like, so, so for example, um, me and Camille, this is a little one. Uh, I like to talk, if you haven't noticed. Uh, I, it's part of my job, mercifully or whatever. And, and Camille uh, does not. Um, She's not naturally a, a, a talker and stuff. And so for a lot of my invitations to die is to shut my mouth and just let other people talk. And, and in my, in my marriage, this looks out like when we're having a, a, you know, an argument or discussion or working through some tension or whatever, uh, it's really hard for Camille to talk. And it's so hard for me to sit with silence, you know, like asking the question, oh, and I, I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm just saying my felt experience of like in a hard conversation with my wife and there's nothing being said, you know, and everything in me wants to just fill it with words and talk it, you know, talk it through and, and all that stuff. And so the invitation for me is to die and allow there to be silence and wait for Camille to speak. The invitation for Camille to die is for her to speak even when she doesn't feel like it or to answer my question, you know, and say like, I don't know the answer. I'll get back to you. Like, that's enough. That's all I'm looking for. Uh, I asked her for permission to share that example, by the way. Uh, that my point is that the, the invitation to die for Camille and I, at least in this realm, is exactly the opposite. This is the surgical precision. And it's why, why we can't like blanket statement, like everybody should talk more or everybody should talk less uh, or whatever. Another example is uh, that my, my friends Ken and Rhonda at my last church, he was an older guy who had been a missionary in Turkey uh, for years. He was an intense Jesus follower. He had missionary in Turkey for, I think, close to 40 years. He was coming back for a visit to visit his ailing mother. And on his way out of the country, he got blacklisted as a terrorist by the Turkish government and could, could never go back. Um, and so as he's leaving, what he thought would just be a couple week trip, he realizes like the place of his entire career was no longer open to him. And so dying to Ken looked like leaving the mission field buying a cute little house in a darling little neighborhood in cozy Grand Rapids, Michigan, and teaching on Zoom and going to the beach and walking down the street to be an elder at our church. Uh, do, you, do you see how like we think, oh, die to self, that means I got to go be a missionary. Like that's good news to a lot of people. Like being intense for the sake of Jesus is good news. But for Ken, it was dying to just sit with his dying mother week after week uh, in a cozy little neighborhood in Grand Rapids. Uh, and, and for you, it might be the opposite. It might be to do something extreme, like go into strip clubs with Scarlet Hope, with the good news of the gospel. And I think as a church family, we think about surgical taking up cross. I think, take it or leave it, something to pray about. I think it's going to be uh, the invitation to, to share your ugly. <laughs> the invitation to share vulnerably what your struggles are, the things that no one knows about you. I'm not saying you have to share everything with everyone or anything, but I'm saying like, I think the way forward as we seek to be a, a revitalized church and grow as a church family is to be stretched and sharing things that we don't have all the answers to, that we can't tie a bow on, that don't make us look good. Take it or leave it. Second thing, follow the pain. Some of us are going through deaths right now, literally and figuratively. 
And the call to take up your cross and follow Jesus might look like just reframing the pain you're experiencing right now, not as an interruption or, uh, or a disruption to life or what you're supposed to do or what God has for you, but instead it, it is your cross right now. It's not something you have to add. It's something, a pain you already have that you need to come to filled with the spirit, curious about what God is seeking to kill and resurrect in your life. I know a lot of us are older and can I just say my heart breaks for the seniors here? Like you guys are sweet, joyful people, which is a gift to me to be around you. But I hear the pain of just aging, you know, bodies breaking down, losing loved one after loved one, no one remembering what you did, uh, all the kinds of grief and loss that come just from the standard practice of aging. And there's an invitation in there. I feel way too young to extend it to you on behalf of Jesus, but there's an invitation to experience those little deaths in such a way that the Holy Spirit can bring new life, even as you uh, as you approach your, your going home to Jesus. And that, I think that it, there's, there's pain even in our church family. And then we're in the season uh, where we're looking to revitalize, where there's been uh, decline over the years and stuff like that, where there, there's, there's pain there. Maybe it's <clears throat> your marriage uh, or, or your lack of marriage. Uh, anything in your life where you're like, this is too painful to be okay. This feels excruciating. That can just be like this beautiful little invitation from Jesus to follow him, to take up your cross and follow him and see how he might bring new life. The things that in your life that feel like there's no hope that they could ever be made new, that there's no, there's no way that they could ever be redeemed. Like those are the exact sweet spots of where the way of Jesus of death and resurrection can happen. Third thing, listen to the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind right now? Maybe it's a, it's a relationship. We, we talked about marriage. You know, marriage might feel hard or lonely or feel like you're showing up day after day and it's not going anywhere or getting any better or you're the only one in it to try to cultivate it or whatever. It might be your singleness, night after night, going to bed alone. And a huge one is forgiveness. Who, who's the Holy Spirit bringing to mind right now that you need to forgive? That is, that is a death. How did God forgive our sins? Jesus died for them. When we forgive someone who has hurt us, it feels excruciating. It feels not right, unjust. And you can do that even if they haven't repented, even if they haven't apologized, even if they've already died. You can, you can go through the process of forgiveness. Maybe it's a, a savings account, some kind of financial habit where God's inviting you to die to that, that the sense of security or it's a TV or a phone habit that <clears throat> God's inviting you to die to. I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But whatever the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind, I'd encourage you to be curious about that. If you need to talk to someone, there's nothing more uh, that I love in my job than to sit with someone who's sensing something, an invitation from God, and to help them explore that. <clears throat> and lastly, super, super practical, just an invitation, not a command, is to fast from food this week, to literally deny yourself food. Maybe you just skip lunch one day or eat dinner one night and wait till dinner the next day, skip breakfast and lunch the next day. Just literally deny yourself food. Don't overthink it. Don't try to make it more than it is. Just as you don't eat and as you feel the hunger pain, just pray this verse. Like, I want to be your disciple. I want to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. Will you show me how? And use that space you would have made food, been, you know, used to make food or eat food and just be with God and see what he does in your life. It's a <clears throat> fasting as a regular practice. It's just a concrete scheduled way of practicing, denying yourself, take it or leave it. To close, I want to read my favorite parable. We we've talked about pain that will come. We've talked about the cost of discipleship that comes that Jesus is, is making clear will come. 
But one thing that I think might not get as much press time is the cost of non-discipleship. This is a term Dallas Willard has made famous. What, what do we miss out if we don't follow Jesus? Because if you'll notice in the language of our text, there's, there's no option to save your life. It's either you try to save it and you lose it, or you lose it and that's where you get it. Uh, there's no option to keep your soul and the world. Matthew 13, 44 says this, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. I love this verse because it, it shows in clear economic terms what Jesus is inviting us into. There is a loss. The man in his joy sold everything he had in order to get what was infinitely more value, valuable than what he had. And I love the word in his joy. So while this is scary, while it will be excruciating, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Uh, Jesus didn't or whatever. But I, I also want to offer the full picture that in your joy, you can lose your life in order to get the treasure, to get life with God, to get the relationship with the being who formed your very existence uh, in love that will satisfy your soul. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a -A K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC podcast.